The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier, the guest host today. And I'm here with the uh, honor of um, being able to interview Dr. Tuesday Stainbrook who is an infectious disease physician from central Pennsylvania. She's board certified in internal medicine, infectious disease, and has specialty in HIV care. She also has a master's degree in public health and has worked uh, as part of several grant-funded projects to support um, uh, the hepatitis C treatment population throughout uh, about 10 counties in Pennsylvania. Um, she's here today uh, after uh, after we had the pleasure of, of seeing a, a book that she wrote recently called Hepatitis C: What You Need to Know, which um, which makes uh, uh, the knowledge and information that she has uh, available to the general public. Um, so um, it's really a pleasure to be able to have Dr. Steinberg on the show today. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. I uh, do love educating people, especially about hepatitis C. It's something I started doing uh, 10 years ago when I moved to central Pennsylvania and saw the need, and I've uh, picked it up and really ran with the ball with um, with my grants and trying to get people to do hepatitis C testing because people don't realize that hepatitis C can be cured and that it's out there and that a lot of people are infected. Well, for, for the person that that, uh, that might not know what hepatitis is, I guess want to just want to start with um, if you could explain what the liver actually is, because uh, hepatitis, uh, from my understanding, is a disease of the liver. Yes, uh, it is a disease of the liver. The liver is actually the largest internal organ, about the size of your football. It's located on the right side of your body, under your rib cage, and hepatitis is basically inflammation of the liver. And hepatitis is just the general term. It can be caused by medicine. It can be caused by alcohol. It can even be caused by fatty infiltration. Or um, We see that with the obesity epidemic. People have what's called steatitosis or fat in there. Or it can be caused by um, viruses. And there's different kinds of viruses that can cause hepatitis. Hepatitis A, there's B, and there's C. Uh, those are the ones that are most commonly affect us in the United States. But there are several other hepatitis, viral hepatitis also. And it also can be inherited. There can be people that... There could be people who have iron overload or hemochromatosis or Wilson's disease. And then there's autoimmune hepatitis where your body's kind of attacking your own liver. So those are some of the um, reasons that people can have hepatitis because it's just a general term. And what your liver does, though, is it filters your blood. The liver actually filters 540 gallons of blood a day. So that's a lot of that's blood. Lot of it blood. clears that blood from toxins. Um, and these toxins, toxins are from medicines that you take, food you eat, or alcohol. And not only does the liver clear your toxins, but it also helps regulate blood sugars. It helps you clot. 
It produces hormones and proteins, and it acts as a storage container for vitamins and minerals. So the hep- your liver is very important. It does a lot of things. How does it act as a storage container? Does it just hold it inside of it or within the cells? Um, In the cells. It helps with the um, glucose and glycogen storage and even and special vitamins that it helps with. Uh, so it's really important. So, and you mentioned that hepatitis is inflammation of the of the liver. What do you mean by inflammation? Inflammation just means swelling, or um, just like when someone has a sore elbow from overuse, it gets inflamed, it gets red. Just think that's how it looks like in the inside too. The capsule of the liver will swell and it becomes inflamed, and the liver itself has no pain fibers. It's the capsule that becomes swollen from inflammation from the virus that actually causes the pain. Though most people have no signs of hepatitis, it's actually a silent virus, which makes it dangerous. People don't, a lot of people don't have any symptoms, but if someone's going to have symptoms, the most common symptom is fatigue, and then it's the right upper quadrant pain. Usually people do not have symptoms right of liver disease until the, um, the upper stage part of the, of the belly, is that right? Yes, of the belly. Yes, okay. People don't tend to have um, symptoms of um, hepatitis till they have a lot of damage. And then you can get that yellowing of your eyes or yellowing of your skin, which is jaundice, and muscle aches and problems with thinking. Okay. Um, and, and so is, is hepatitis the only problem that you can get with your liver? It, um no, there's lots of other liver diseases, um, but that's the one that um, that I treat most often is he- from hepatitis, from chronic hepatitis. It's a virus. Okay, okay. And um, you, you mentioned that alcohol is, is uh, um, can cause hepatitis. Um, people often talk about cirrhosis of the liver. Could you just talk about the difference between between the um, the, the problems that people can get with uh, hepatitis and, and other alcohol-related problems with the liver? Um, yeah, both kind of mechanisms are kind of the same. What you're doing is you're injuring your liver cells because they get overwhelmed either by the virus or the alcohol. And what happens is that that liver cell just can't function anymore, and it dies. And when it dies, it puts down scar tissue, and the Scar tissue, a fancy word that we use in the medical community, is fibrosis. And these, what I like to tell people is you think of your liver, it just becomes a bunch of scar tissue or it has a little bit of balls of scar tissue. And then when it becomes too much of the scar tissue, it becomes cirrhosis. Cirrhosis just means that you have a, your liver has become a ball of scar. And the cirrhosis is when your liver doesn't work right. Um, you can have what's called compensated cirrhosis, meaning that your liver, you still have end-stage liver disease, but your liver's working right. Or you could have uncompensated cirrhosis, which means that your liver doesn't even function well. It's not um, clearing those toxins. You're not um, clotting correctly. you having problems starting um, with thinking, and then that's when you get the yellowing of the eyes and the jaundice, and you can't clear the fluid, so you get a lot of fluid in your belly, which are ascites, or a lot of fluid in your legs. So that's our goal with treatment and educating people is to prevent that end-stage liver disease and liver cirrhosis. So really the mechanism between 
viral hepatitis and alcohol hepatitis isn't very different. They both lead to damage of your liver and can both lead to cirrhosis. And if you have two of them together, that actually is much worse because you all have two factors damaging your liver. So you, you're, usually it takes 20 to 30 years to develop liver cirrhosis with chronic hepatitis C. And everyone's different. I've seen 26-year-olds get liver cirrhosis after a few years. And I've also seen, seen 60-year-olds who have had chronic hepatitis C for 50 years and not having liver cirrhosis. So everyone's different. But on average, it takes 20 to 30 years. But if you put alcohol on top of viral hepatitis C, that could, you can get cirrhosis a lot faster. So alcohol really speeds it up. Yeah, it does. And is that true for other drugs as well or just alcohol? Um, it is if you would have um, some medication that causes liver disease, such as there's some psychiatric medications that hurt your liver. Um, the statins for cholesterol, they have to be watched because they could also hurt your liver. So you could, in potential, and Tylenol, of course, you could potentially cause too much liver da- damage with a combination of um, hepatitis C and medication. And it's also true with HIV virus and the hepatitis B virus. Those viruses also speed up that process to liver cirrhosis. Okay. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about these different hepatitis viruses. You mentioned A and B and C. Um, I'm not sure that everybody knows the difference between them. Okay. Uh, Hepatitis A, uh, you get from eating contaminated food and water. If everyone remembers Chi-Chi's, that was my favorite restaurant when I was growing up. Um, that actually went out of business because of hepatitis A in Pennsylvania. Um, they had an outbreak in their green onions, and it is a foodborne disease. Um, there is a vaccination for it, and because what came out of that outbreak is now that all children are vaccinated for hepatitis A, and anyone who wants a vaccination for hepatitis A should ask for one. Um, and we encourage anyone with any liver disease to uh, get the hepatitis A vaccination because you don't want to get a, a hepatitis on another hepatitis because that can be fatal. So that's hepatitis A in a nutshell. Hepatitis B is transmitted blood to blood as hepatitis C is. Um, there is a vaccination for hepatitis B. Hepatitis B cannot be cured. Uh, but more, many people do not have chronic hepatitis B. It tends to, the body tends to see it and are able to fight it. But if you do have chronic hepatitis B, you're on medicine for life. Um, hepatitis C transmitted the same way as hepatitis B, using blood-to-blood transmission. Nowadays, 80 to 90% of people, new people with hepatitis C, are um, IV intravenous drug users. But there's other ways that um, we'll go over that you can get hepatitis C. There is no vaccination for hepatitis C. Um, But unlike hepatitis B and HIV, it actually can be cured. It can be cured? Hepatitis, yeah, that is probably the biggest misconception out there is hepatitis C is a virus that actually floats around in your cells It does not go into your DNA like HIV or hepatitis B, so it's easily killed. And with the new medication that were FDA approved last May, the success rate for curing hepatitis C is almost 80%. Not everybody can can be cured, but 80% of people can be cured. 
Well, we'll definitely spend some time talking about these new treatments. That will be very exciting for people to learn about. Um, can, can you tell us a, a little bit more about uh, hepatitis uh, C, though? Um, what are the symptoms that, that you see with hepatitis C? Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to start off with is I think a lot of people don't realize that hepatitis C is the most common blood-borne viral disease in the United States, and it is actually four times more common than HIV. The CDC estimates that over 5 million people may have hepatitis C, but most of us don't know because no, it's not something that everybody checks. Um, it's not a routine blood work. You have to specifically usually ask for this blood work. Um, and the thing with hepatitis C is when people get infected with hepatitis C, most people who get infected go on to have chronic hepatitis C. Only 15% of people who actually get hepatitis C clear that virus and don't have chronic hepatitis C. It is actually the 10th cause of death in the United States. So it is a very serious problem. And the problem also why there's there are so many people is because most people have no symptoms of hepatitis C. It's a silent virus and if someone is going to have the symptoms though, they're usually going to have fatigue, they can have the belly pain in the right side, um, bloating, muscle joint pains. Um, one other thing that people don't realize is hepatitis C not only affects your liver, but it can affect many other organ systems, such as your skin. You can get what's called a vasculitis, which is inflammation or um, a rash on your skin. It can cause um, problems with your kidneys. It can cause problems with your eyes. It's also, also uh, thought to lead to diabetes. So there is a large, um, it can cause arthritis. There's a large amount of other things that um, hepatitis C can do other than just affect your liver. Because there's a lot of um, a lot of effects from hepatitis C. We have to go to break right now, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes, and and we'll talk more about how people do get hepatitis C, and uh, and then we'll we'll talk about what you can do about it if you have it. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier, guest host. And I'm here with Dr. Tuesday Stainbrook, who is an infectious disease uh, physician in central Pennsylvania and who was honored with the Viral Hepatitis Award of Excellence given by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Health Department in 2007. Uh, we're really happy to have her here today. And she was just uh, spending some time talking about the uh, uh, hepatitis and uh, different types of hepatitis. And I wonder if you could just go into a little more detail about how people get hepatitis C today. If um, 9 out of 10 people are not aware that I have hepatitis C, it seems like it's really important to focus on the risk factors for hepatitis C so that those people who may have been infected um, can uh, go and ask their doctors to be tested. Yeah, um, it is very important to um, know these risk factors for you'll know if you are at risk for hepatitis C. And the thing with hepatitis C, there is what we call traditional risk factors, and then there's untraditional risk factors. So if anyone has, you know, it wants to know, I, I really highly recommend that they ask their physician um, about the testing. And so I'm going to go over a little bit of the traditional risk factors for hepatitis C. Um, as I said before, 80 to 90% of new cases of hepatitis C are from intravenous drug use. But there is a lot of other uh, risk factors for hepatitis C, which include, um, many people don't know, is people who had blood transfusion or organ transplants prior to 1992 are at risk. This is no longer a risk factor getting blood transfusions, but prior to July of 1992, it certainly is. If someone had clotting factors prior to 1987, uh, they may be at risk also. Uh, Needle stick injuries, of course, especially if it was a needle stick with someone who was positive for hepatitis C, uh, they are high risk. Uh, Children who are born to hepatitis C positive mothers, if you have a sectional partner who had hepatitis C, uh, you are uh, at risk. And I, but I do want to say the risk of transmission sexually is low. In fact, the CDC does not recommend condom use with monogamous patients. But if you have multiple partners and at risk for um, high-risk sexual uh, practices, then that is a risk factor. Is there a difference um, in risk um, um, as for men transmitting to women or women transmitting to men? It is both. It's the same. It's the same. Um, it would depend on um, the um, type of sex, sexual uh, intercourse and um, also the, high, the how high the viral load is. But it can be risk. It can be transmitted either way. Um, okay. Okay. And and do people have have if they have a chronic infection? Is is the risk? Um, a transmission much lower than, than if there's an acute infection? Um, no, it's about the same, and it will depend on the viral load. But again, it, if it's a monogamous relationship, um, it's actually lifetime risk is less than 10%. But that risk is still there. I see. Okay. And, and also tattooing. I want, I want to talk about tattooing because I know in some studies, tattoo party, parties have become uh, very popular. Um, Anytime that there would be tattooing with unsterilized needles, that is certainly a risk factor. Um, 
even untraditional risk factors are just long, having surgeries of long duration uh, several years ago because of pro- improper sterilization techniques. Um, I mean, I remember that there, not too long ago, there was a physician that was found in uh, Arizona who was not sterilizing his uh, endoscopes correctly. So, I mean, that can definitely be a risk factor. Also, and I do it myself, manicures and pedicures. Um, if they do not sterilize the instruments correctly and someone prior to getting that manicure or pedicure had hepatitis C, um, they certainly could, you could be infected. So don't feel so bad how, asking how your you manicures or ask? how they sterilize. Um, and, and what should someone be looking for in, in making sure that the people are sterilizing correctly? Well, it's hard to tell. It's hard to to look for something. You basically have to ask and hope, trust that they are sterilizing it correctly. And, and is that sterilizing with alcohol or something like that, or iodine? Uh, usually, or they actually have a, a sterilized procedure that's um, run by the state. They actually have to put the it in a uh, bleach container, and then they sterilize it by the uh, light. I see. But that, that, is, that is a risk factor. Um, also, one risk factor is even using um, straws for intranasal cocaine. It doesn't take much blood to get on that straw to um, be infected, so that is also a risk factor. Um, and when you go yeah, I imagine, to a tattoo... And, and does that go for all intranasal drug use, if you use does. a straw or a roll-up? Uh, you know, a dollar, something like that, for any any drug use that that can uh, yes, occur. Yes, that, that would be a risk factor. Yeah. And when um, I want to stress with tattooing that they should always someone should always use a new needle, sterilized needle, and ask for individual ink wells, or that make sure that the tattoo artist pours out it in little cups. So because you can contaminate the um, dye or the ink. Um, and then it can be transmitted that way also. Um, sharing toothbrushes or is, razors is, certain, is, is also a risk factor. That tattoo shops need to have. Uh, most tattoo shops are very good at at um, making sure that they're um, they're using, you know, that their stuff is sterilized and they're using. It. They don't. I see a lot of them don't use the individual ink wells, but they do make sure that they are pouring the ink into individual cups and never putting that needle back into that original bottle. Okay. But what, what it comes to concerning is when you have the home tattooing, and that, um, that, that is definitely a risk factor. I used to see about three or four people a year with um, hepatitis C from tattoos. But we've really educated around my area, and so we don't really see that too often. Well, I'm glad that, that that is something that uh, education has made a difference in. Um, I, I know I know that um, that it's become more popular mixed martial arts and cage fighting and um, and those kinds of things. And I, I wondered um, I wondered just with uh, um, boxing in general, um, do, do you see hepatitis C um, get, getting uh, transmitted in these kinds of um, uh, in these kinds of sports? Um, I would say it would be it would be a low. Is it possible? Yes, but it would be a low risk because you would have to have mixing of blood. So you would have to get, you would have to have a cut, and you'd have to have the other person's blood get into your, your, uh, your cut or your abrasion. So 
it is possible, but I would say it would probably be a low risk. It's not as high as risk as putting a needle like you're doing tattooing or even, you know, getting cut with something with a manicurist or something. So it would be low, but it's poss- it's it's definitely possible. And how about sharing toothbrushes? Let's say you're on a date and uh, um, you forgot your toothbrush um, and uh, sharing the, the person's toothbrush. Um, uh, is that something that, that could increase Yes, not just toothbrushes, but razors. And um, I actually uh, saw a gentleman, uh, I'll never forget it, he worked on an oil rig and he came to see me because he had actually had acute hepatitis, which we don't see very often. And um, he's like, I have no risk factors for hepatitis C. And we started talking and he works on an oil rig. And when they all go off, sometimes they forget to bring the razor, so they share razors. And we realized that he probably got one of his crew probably has chronic hepatitis C, and he shared their razor. So that definitely is a risk factor. So sharing razors and toothbrushes, definite. You mentioned that acute hepatitis C, you don't see it much. Can you just define the difference between acute and chronic hepatitis C? Yeah, acute hepatitis C, um, because it's a silent virus, many people, when when they first get infected with the virus, They don't have any symptoms. And then some people will have, like, they feel like they have the flu. And about one or two weeks after they've been exposed to hepatitis C, they'll, like, think, oh, I got the flu. I feel fluish. I kind of ache all over. I have a low-grade temp. But then it goes away in two or three days. That's usually acute hepatitis C. Rarely we'll see someone walk in who got jaundice. They got so sick that their liver function tests are really high. Those people, because the virus kind of flies under the radar and your immune system doesn't really see it, that's what what's makes, makes it be a silent virus. When someone has acute hepatitis C and they have symptoms, their, their immune system has seen that virus, they're fighting it, they're having all these symptoms. Those people who have acute hepatitis C tend to even clear more so than people who have no symptoms. Um, so we occasionally see that. Um, there is also some research showing that even if you treat those people who have acute hepatitis, you have a much easier treatment and you don't have to go as long as treatment because you all, how the medicine works, and we'll get into how, what, how treatment is, but it makes the, your body see that virus. So you, reg, you upregulate your immune system to fight the virus, and that's kind of what you, why you see those symptoms in acute hepatitis C, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Chronic hepatitis C is just you have a, always have virus in your blood and you're really not too symptomatic or if you do have those symptoms, it's usually, like I said, the fever, I'm not the fever, the um, fatigue and the belly pain on the right side. So generally it's chronic hepatitis C, you don't actually feel that sick until, until you reach the end stage liver disease or cirrhosis. Yeah, that- everyone's different, okay. but um, some people have more symptoms, some people have less. It, it's really kind of... But I would say most people know they don't have any symptoms. Mm-hmm. So someone might, might just feel depressed and low energy, and it may actually be because they have hepatitis C. Is that right? Um, I'm sorry? Uh, so low it, energy? Um, some of people might just feel like low energy and depressed, and, and it may be it may right. actually be because they have hepatitis C. I see. You mentioned something. You, you said viral load at one point. I was wondering if you could talk more about um, what you mean by that um, the, uh, just before we go to break. Okay. Um, well, viral load is actually is 
what we consider the amount of virus in your blood. When the first test that your doc, your doctor will order will be just an antibody test. And when I like to talk about antibody tests as memory tests, that's your memory cells showing that you were exposed to the hepatitis C. That doesn't mean that you have the hepatitis C. Um, the viral load actually is a measurement if there is virus in your bloodstream. And that's what the test we order to uh, determine if someone has chronic hepatitis C. If there is virus in your blood, then it's considered chronic hepatitis C. If there is no virus in their blood, then we can tell, and they have a positive antibody, which is memory cell, then uh, we can tell either one, they've been treated in the past for hepatitis C, or two, their body took care of that virus themselves and recognized the virus. And as they before, about 15% of people can do that. Their body can recognize the virus and take care of it. Okay. Well, let's go to break now. When we come back, let's talk more about um, uh, the people who uh, whose body can't take care of their hepatitis C and talk about what treatments might, might be becoming available. Okay. Um, right now, well, let me talk first uh, we'll, about... When we get back from break, we'll, oh, okay. we'll, we'll pick up here. Okay. Thank you very much. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is guest host Zeb Schumann Olivier. I'm here with Dr. Tuesday Stainbrook, uh, who is an infectious disease physician in central Pennsylvania and has a master's degree in public health. Uh, Dr. Stainbrook in 2011 received the Outstanding Community Service Award for her exceptional support and dedication to the field of substance abuse um, by the uh, Clearfield Jefferson Drug and Alcohol Commission, and she has multiple grants working um, to uh, increase education about hepatitis C in our community. Um, Dr. Stainbrook, can you tell us a little more about some of these treatments that are, n- are now available? Yeah, it's actually C? a very exciting time. There are um, new two, two new treatments. Two new drugs that were released in May of last year for um, treatment of hepatitis C. Um, before these two new drugs, uh, our standard treatment would be co- consist of a shot that you took once a week, which was called a pegulated interferon. Um, and then there would be a pill that you took twice a day called ribavirin. And you would have to take these uh, medication either anywhere from six months to a year, depending on what type of hepatitis C you had. The two new medications are called protease inhibitors. 
And let me take a step backwards and tell you how those other medications work. The, the interferon, uh, which some people in the past have called, considered, you know, compared it to chemotherapy, basically upregulates your immune system. It makes your immune system recognize the virus where it can kill it. And then the ribavirin or the pills, we really don't know how they work, but we know they're important. But before the new medication, the success nationwide was about 55%. So it wasn't a lot. With these new medications, which are our protease inhibitors, I like to think of them as an antibiotic-like. They directly attack the virus. And they have increased their success rate up to almost 80% in people who have, um, who, with, who undergo treatment for hepatitis C. Do people usually do, do all four together? Or do you just uh, do all the, three? There's um, three of them because there's two medications in the same class. Um, they do three of them, and it, but it's only for genotype 1, those three. The new medication were for genotype 1, which was the tougher um, virus to treat. Um, let me go back and tell you about genotypes. Um, there are different strains of hepatitis C. The most com- there are four common ones in the United States. Uh, really, there's, we'll say there's three, and then there's uh, three common ones, and then there's another one that we sometimes see. But genotype 1 definitely is the most common one in the United States. That's the one that's harder to treat. That's the one that had the success rate of about 55% before the new medication. That's the one that took the whole year to treat. With the new medication, however, treatment can be now possibly be decreased to six months. Then there's genotypes 2 and 3, which are um, not so common. About 20% of the population have them. Um, those are easier to treat. They still only require the two medications, the interferon and the ribavirin, and those um, require six months of treatment. And overall, the success rate is about 75-80% with those for those genotypes. So along with that viral load, that is, the genotype is one of the other things that you want to ask your physician about and, to, and if you do have hepatitis C, um, what that genotype is because it's important because it dictates what therapy you're going to get in the future. Now, do the protease inhibitors work for genotype 2 and 3 and they're just not necessary or are they not effective? On, they are on not. Genotype it does not. There are some studies undergoing uh, on genotype 2, but they do not work on genotype 3, no. So um, the good thing is we don't need them in a lot of, in a lot of um, people. But, you know, there are some genotypes 2 and 3 out there who definitely need some other sort of therapy in the future. And there is a lot of exciting research out there right now with hepatitis C. There's um, a lot of medication in the pipeline that we're hoping that in three to five years we'll have more, um, more agents available. But right now the protease inhibitors are only for genotype 1. And, and just to clarify, so when people go on the protease inhibitors for genotype 1, they also are taking the interferon and the ribavirin as well. It's just in addition to that. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's a very important um, point. It is not a monotherapy. You have to use the other, the three in combination. And the treatment itself, is some, is, it's difficult. I'm not going to kid anybody. It's something that people have to want to do because there are lots of side effects but do I see people on treatment and get through it? 
Yes. And I, do I see people who work full-time and get through treatment? Yes. But it is, it is difficult. It's not easy. The side effects tend to be uh, flu-like illness. Uh, they, people feel tired. They feel run down. You can also become anemic, which is low red blood cells. And that can even be potentiated with those protease inhibitors because the rivarin itself was already causing people to be anemia. Now with these protease inhibitors, they can become more anemic, which we require blood transfusions or um, other medication to stimulate their bone marrow to make more red blood cells. There's also um, depression can be worsened while on treatment, so it's important that depression and anxiety are under control prior to treatment. Um, it can also Treatment can also make your white blood cells, those are the cells that fight infection, go low. And so there's a potential for another medication that's a shot uh, called Neupogen to stimulate your bone marrow to make white blood cells. So when someone is on treatment, they rec- blood work is done frequently, usually every two weeks. Um, doctor visits are done monthly. And um, there and there's many more side effects that it's hard to go over in this time frame, uh, but I want to mention one more. Rash with the new medication, uh, people can get rash and itchiness. So um, something that they really need to discuss with their doctor, but I don't want to discourage anyone either because I have treated so many people and it's so rewarding to see a success and it just makes people feel better about themselves when they get rid of this virus. Because a lot of times it is, there is a stigma with hepatitis C and people just feel a lot better to be treated and getting rid of that virus. Hmm. Do you have to be sober to, uh, to get treated for hepatitis C? Uh... You do need to be sober, um, you, especially with alcohol. Um, alcohol, as we talked about, is cleared through your liver. And not only from a compliance standpoint, because these medications are very expensive. Treatment costs about $99,000, $100,000. And you don't want to mess up also because the virus can, can become resistant to those new medications if you don't take them properly. So not only from a compliance standpoint is it important to be sober, but also it doesn't work. You have... You have medicines that are trying to help make your liver healthier and kill that virus, and you can't have alcohol interfering with that. So people need to be clean, go to, uh, and, you know, go to uh, meetings or rehab, and we send people who have um, problems with drug and alcohol to um, intensive outpatient or inpatient therapy beforehand to try to prepare them for treatment. Okay. Do people uh, ever relapse during during treatment? Seems like with all the, um, the fatigue and the uh, anxiety that you speak about, um, uh, uh, does that does that does that happen sometimes? Um, it does happen, of course. Um, yeah. I I mean, I, my goal is education. As long as people know what to expect, and they know what their side effects are, and you tell them. You're there for them. I don't tend to have a lot of people relapse. Uh, I tend to see, see them more relapse after treatment's finished. Um, okay. Because treatment, if you get hepatitis C treatment, 
and you're cured, that doesn't, however, protect you for the rest of your life. You can be reinfected with the virus. It can be a different genotype. It can be the same genotype. Reinfection does happen because it doesn't, that antibody that's a membership does not protect you, though. Really? Well, why is that? It's, it, it usually works for other viruses, right? That you, once you've been yeah, infected, you it does, like the flu. Yet. It does, but not with this virus. We, I don't know why, but we, we do not have the memory cell that can fight that virus again. You can be reinfected. I see. Um, in, in my work, I often work with people that, that have um, um, some severe persistent mental illness, either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia um, or, or severe depression. Um, are, is uh, mental health ever a contraindication to getting these kinds of treatments? It is. Um, you have to be cleared by your psychiatrist or psychologist that your anxiety and your um, depression are stable. And they have to be your counselor or your therapist or your psychiatrist have to be part of the team when it comes to treatment. They need to um, know that you're undergoing treatment. They need to be aware of what week you're on how you're feeling, it is very important to bring them in and help with the treatment because depression and anxiety can be a contraindication and, uh, and people who cannot, who are not stable with their medication and uh, mood. In, in hospitals that I've worked in here in Boston, there is a, actually usually a dedicated psychiatrist um, to the, the teams that are doing interferon treatment so everyone gets a uh, evaluation with a psychiatrist um, before starting in order to kind of assess for uh, whether or not they benefit from medication like antidepressant during the course of treatment. Um, so I think that, that is a very important thing, and I'm glad that, that you uh, mentioned that. Um, if you have HIV, can, can, you, get a, can you get hepatitis C, or, or is oh. it the same, um, does it, or does it increase the risk? Um, you can get H- have HIV and hepatitis C. Um, you can undergo treatments. Um, they have a tr- they have currently have trials looking at the new protease inhibitors with treatment with HIV, but they are not complete yet. Um, but you certainly can get standard, you know, pegulated interferon and ribavirin treatment. Um, there is some concerns with um, the new met protease inhibitors with interacting with the HIV medication. Um, but having HIV and hepatitis C can increase your risk of progression to liver cirrhosis. And um, sometimes the success rates of treatment are a little bit lower. But I have treated uh, several people with who have been co-infected who have done very well and had uh, clinical cure. Um, so the, the protease inhibitors for hepatitis C then are different types of protease inhibitors than the ones that are used to treat HIV? They are. They are completely different. I see. Just the same name. Yes. Same class, but they are completely different. Okay. And what happens if, if treatment doesn't work? If you're in that 20% of people who you go through this six-month period or a year-long period and, and it just didn't work for you? Well, there isn't a lot of options out there right now. Um, there is another medication that's uh, another different kind of interferon called Impergen that may be a possibility. But 
what we're hoping, though, is I would think that most people probably are um, just waiting then for the next medication, which hopefully will be released uh, in three years, but it's looking to be three to five years. It's, if it's important, though, if the medication did not work and the new medication did not work because um, in the past, if someone's medication did not work, that does not mean that the new medication will not work. Um, it's, it's been very successful. But if the new medication does not work, uh, then you should still follow up with your uh, physician every six months and have your liver scanned because you can become at risk for liver cancer having hepatitis C and have blood work done um, in every six months until the new medication are out there. I see. Well, let's take a break for a moment, and uh, when we come back, uh, I want to finish up by hearing about the programs that you're developing for um, helping to educate people about hepatitis C, and, and also, I, you know, I would be interested to to learn more about um, if there are any other uh, ways that people can kind of take care of their health if they have hepatitis C besides medication. Um, we'll be back in a minute. Thank you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier, guest host today with uh, Dr. Tuesday Stainbrook, who is an infectious disease physician in central Pennsylvania and an expert in uh, hepatitis C. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us, uh, is there anything besides medicine that people can do to um, decrease the symptoms of hepatitis C, things like integrative or alternative or complementary medicine um, that that people use? Um, There really isn't much available. Um, There is milk thistle, which is a uh, vitamin that has been shown in some studies to decrease hepatic inflammation, which is, you know, um, swelling of your liver and stuff. It does not cure the disease, but it certainly can help some symptomatology. Um, and I think it's, I, I know a lot of people take it, and it's, it's, I don't feel there's any harm taking it. I would not take it while I'm on treatment for hepatitis C, but taking it before treatment, uh, that's not a problem. 
Okay. And and if you take it, um, was there anything that you can take uh, in order to help prevent you from getting hepatitis C to decrease the the possibilities of infection? Um, no. There. What you can do is just uh, play it safe. Um, you know, don't share needles. Um, don't share toothbrushes and um, razors. Uh, use clean syringes and individual inkwells if they're getting a tattoo. Um, no, don't share straws when snorting. Uh, things like that, you know, safe sex practices using condoms uh, will help keep you and protect you from hepatitis C. You can't get hepatitis C from hugging, kissing, sharing utensils. Same way, or even um, giving blood now, you are transmitting or receiving blood. Okay. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, the work that, that you're doing um, locally and uh, the different programs that, that you've been uh, working on to really get this message out about educating people about hepatitis C? Yeah. Um, since 2005, we, um, in Pennsylvania, we were, we were one of the few counties who received our hepatitis C, uh, money for hepatitis C screening. So um, we have been um, very active in our counties and surrounding counties with just education and um, getting people tested. Um, we want people to become more aware of hepatitis C because, you know, treatment now is very successful um, and trying to just get the misconceptions out there. The, you know, the biggest misconception is that hepatitis C cannot be cured, which it, it definitely can be cured. Um, one of the things that we did not touch on, I wanted, I wanted to touch on real quickly, is liver function tests. Liver function tests are actually uh, tested or blood tests that that it shows how your liver works. But the thing with hepatitis C that is that they don't give us any information on how much damage is in your liver, and they could be normal. So if someone goes to their doctor and they're asking about their liver function test, they could still have hepatitis C and still have normal liver function tests. So that is not a good way to kind of screen for hepatitis C. I see. So if you have the ability, which you do here on this radio show, to speak to people that, that might be working in addiction treatment programs or, or mental health treatment programs across the country, um, what would be the, the two or three take-home messages that you'd like them to kind of go, go in back to their, you know, their teams or their programs and to make sure that they're doing what, what they should be doing to, to help uh, make sure that the people they're working with in, in the population that, that they're caring for um, uh, has hepatitis C addressed appropriately? Um, I guess my take, one of my biggest take-out messages is that hepatitis C can be cured. Um, it's just not a chronic disease. And that people who are younger um, can have a better chance of being cured. Every year someone waits, their chances of being cured goes down by 10%. So just getting out there and getting tested. If anyone has any risk factors, um, I encourage them to ask their family physician or any physician that they're seeing, even their gynecologist, um, for a test. I mean, it's just a blood test. I know a couple of years ago there was a national movement to make HIV testing a part of admissions to any kind of addiction treatment program. Is that same kind of kind of national recommendation been made with respect to hepatitis C? That's the way it is, it is looking. I mean, there has been recently um, 
even a push to get all baby boomers tested because of the whole thing with blood transfusions and uh, vaccinations when they were younger, um, that that may be a big possibility that all it becomes a required test for all baby boomers. Oh, wow. So, um, but, but as far as people with substance use disorders and, and, uh, and intravenous drug use, uh, since that's such a high risk factor, you said 90% of people nowadays um, are in that. Did you recommend universal screening? Um, uh, I, yeah, I, I probably would. I mean, if you have a risk factor, um, I, I, do, I would recommend universal screening for high-risk people because I've seen people who have, once they found out about hepatitis C, it kind of really hits them like, wow, I've done this to myself. And, and it has helped people give them the extra push to get off drugs and seek care. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that you would probably help some people that way, not only by curing their hep C, but also just making them aware of it. Um, you know, I, I once worked with somebody who uh, had um, had uh, only used intravenous drugs once, and she came in um, for treatment um, for uh, heroin use and wanted to be on Suboxone. And uh, um, and we we drew her labs and then started her on Suboxone, and it turns out that that she came up back with very very high liver function tests, and, and that she had just converted. Um, I guess had acute hepatitis C that had just started um, very recently, um, and, and uh, I wonder. Uh, sometimes people have been afraid to to treat uh, people for opiate dependence um, with methadone or suboxone when they have hepatitis C. I was wondering if you could comment on on that. Is, is there any uh, is there any downside to uh, treating people with with opiate replacement if they have hepatitis C? Uh, no, the new medications they do interact with suboxone and. Uh, methadone, but it's not something that we can't deal with, and we just have to be aware that it can lower those doses of suboxone and methadone while they're on treatment with the protease inhibitors. Um, but I do not think that that is a reason not to treat someone because while they're getting on uh, treatment for their um, IV drug use. No. Okay. Well, I know that you you said something about a about a uh, video that that you have. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little more about um, about that and possibly a place where people could go if they want to find out more information, a website or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They could, they could I actually there. have a website that's called uh, that's www. I'm sorry, www.hepcinfo.com. And then I also have a YouTube video that will go that is very thorough. It goes through everything that we've talked about today. It's YouTube. It's chronic hepatitis C. Um, could I have it? I believe it's called. Um, but um, it's probably if you come go, go just Google chronic hepatitis C on YouTube. It's about the third or fourth video down, and it is very well written and it's very good. And um, if you have any other questions, again, www.hepcinfo.com. My book's available at Barnes & Noble's, www.arthurhouse.com. Anywhere you can buy books, you can get it. It's Hep C, What You Need to Know. I see. And how how long has this book been out for? Is it pretty up-to-date? Yeah. um, I I had it published in September, so it is uh, actually up-to-date and very easy to read and thorough. 
Okay, and and I actually have seen it, and I, and I recommend it. It's a, it's a, it seems like a great thing that every um, every program should have sitting in his waiting room, uh, something for uh, for people to uh, flip through when they're when they're coming into treatment or um, um, or, or waiting to see uh, um, their treatment the treatment provider because um, it really is that accessible and uh, and interesting to look at. Um, so again, uh, Dr. Steinbrook, thank you very much for for your time today, taking an hour out of your busy work week. Um, and uh, from all the good work that you're doing to uh, spend time to educate us and our community. Um, so, so thank you again. And, oh, thank uh, you for having me. And we'll go to your website. So thank you very much. Thank you. And, and we'll be back uh, next week with uh, one hour at a time. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.